Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another week's edition of Let's Talk Politics with Emmett and Dean. This week, we will be discussing white nationalism and the United States President Donald J. Trump responds to the white nationalist protest in Virginia. We will also be discussing the role of race and this particular election and the growing threat of North Korea. All right, as many of you know, uh, tr the election of Donald Trump as the 45th president of the United States uh, has really had the country on a roller coaster ride since the campaign. And at the initial, during the campaign, Trump was accused of being a bigot. He was accused of being a racist. He was accused of being a misogynistic uh, person. And a number of, of, and because his actions have always demonstrated uh, some level of bigotry. Um, this past weekend, white nationalists gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, to protest the removal of the statute of Robert E. Lee, who is a who was a Confederate uh, general. Uh, during that particular protest, uh, other social groups. Uh, began to do a counter-protest. And during the counter-protest, uh, they gathered to, to engage in their demonstrations. A white nationalist actually rammed his car through, through a crowd, ultimately killing uh, a young lady who was uh, participating in the demonstration. After that particular event, several individuals called upon the President of the United States to demonstrate some moral authority to openly condemn white supremacists and white nationalists who had gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia. The President didn't even unequivocally condemn these particular white nationalist groups. And after facing important scrutiny, one of the first things we heard from the president was he's condemning the violence on both sides. This caused a political firestorm in the political world because many people suggested, rightfully so, that the president was equating both the counter protesters and the white nationalists on the same ground. Uh, the president a couple of days passed, he continued to face scrutiny in the news media, and he ended up holding a press conference that was supposed to talk about infrastructure, and it was a train wreck. The president reaffirmed his commitment that he was right in his initial assessment to condemn both sides. He referred to white nationalists and white supremacists. He said that they were there were some really good people, or some people was there who were clearly white nationalists or neo-Nazis. Some of them were really good people. Uh, and this has caused us to return to America's original sin in its discussions about race and its political implications in American democracy. Uh, and so we'll sort of center our discussion around these particular issues, but I want to pay specific attention to this notion of white nationalism. Now, let, Dean, so give me your reactions, your response. What, what are your reactions to this entire uh, debacle that has taken place? Well, I, I've, I've been I've been a never-Trumper. Um, I'm not trying, I'm really trying to understand why people are flabbergasted by the words of the president or flabbergasted by what's going on in uh, our society as if this is something that's brand new. 
um, coming at you from the right side or from the right, I tell people a lot of the times the Republican Party was not built for white nationalists, especially here in Texas. When I have to spurt the information of Republicans here in Texas, and a lot of times when I even have to look at a white nationalist in the face and tell them you are a part of a party that was created by five Afri- by about five to seven African Americans and two white men. Um, so for me, when I there's a lot that we can talk about. I don't even know where to kind of begin. Um, I'm looking at white supremacy and and neo-Nazism as a slap in the face to me, a slap in the face to my great-grandfather, a slap in the face to all of those World War II veterans who had to fight uh, Nazi Nazis in Germany. Um, many of our many of our member uh, our members in the military died, um, or many of our vets from World War II died defending. Um, this nation and defending the world from um, supremacy, period. So when I see Americans with a Nazi flag uh, and neo and Nazi emblems, it almost strikes. A, a, I'm not going to say a fear in my heart, but it strikes. It strikes me to the core because I've seen. I've seen what happens when uh, leadership allows rhetoric like this to happen i haven't seen it but i've read it and when you read history it kind of goes back into what we were what we saw during right before world war ii happened when you had this uh group of these group of germans who felt like they were and let's put it let's let's put it this way they felt like they were they felt like second-class citizens in their own country and they felt like second-class citizens to jews so you saw this rhetoric sprout up out of that particular pod party, which was the Nazi party. And you had elected officials who either let it ride or who were a part of it. And then to come, what, 50, 60 years later, 70 years later, and we see a president that is defending neo-Nazism is ridiculous. And I think that's why everyone is so enraged with him right now, because it's like, have you sat, even sat through a social studies class, a middle school? This is stuff that they teach us in middle school. The fact that you labeled um, Antifa and Black Lives Matter with a, with neo-Nazis and white supremacists was crazy. And then he wonders why all of these people dropped out of his council, uh, financial council. It's because of that reason. No one wants to be labeled or no one wants their companies to be labeled as white supremacists. Here in America, we we have our bloodstained past, but our goal is to better our nation, not to take it back to a time where it was. That's the beauty about America is that every decade we we fight we fight injustice and we fight to make the country better for everyone. And when you have a president who doesn't even have that that viewpoint or who continues to divide the country, that is an issue. Because because that's basically what you're doing. You're allowing you're allowing the rhetoric of these people to continue by even by even acknowledging them 
or acknowledging that they they had the right to, to do that. You, we all know we, you have the right to protest, but you don't have the right to go into someone's town and harass them. Well, there, there are two things here, uh, uh, moving parts that we see. On the one hand, I'm the least bit surprised or shocked that Donald Trump ha- has played footsie with white nationalists or white supremacists. I'll also say that the Republican Party, and when we talk about political parties in the U.S., yes, African Americans were loyal to the Republican Party in early U.S. history, but when you look at the ideology espoused of the particular party at that time, they're drastically different today. And we have to move to the 1960s, where Democrats adopted civil rights as part of their national agenda. And so the response to that was white flight. As blacks became, as civil rights became part of the Democratic Party's national platform, whites exited the party and realigned, and we know this is the great realignment of American politics, where they aligned with the Republican Party. Ever since then, the Republican Party has played footsie with white nationalists, and what has become even more apparent. And and so so we talk about this. You think about the great people who are held in by the Republican Party, uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was nothing, didn't didn't do anything but advance white nationalist interests. He opened his campaign in Mississippi, a couple of miles from where the civil rights workers were killed. And so when we look at Donald Trump, I'm the least bit surprised that he has played footsie with the uh, with white nationalism, primarily because he showed us who he was during the campaign. And for many white Americans, many Mexican Americans, anybody who supported him, they excused his racism. They excused his bigotry. And so in excusing his particular bigotry, they were complicit to Donald Trump's racism. It's no surprise. Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, has a her- terrible uh, history when it comes to race. It's no surprise. Steve Bannon is a white nationalist. So why are we now surprised that the president refused to condemn white nationalism? During the campaign, he he said, um, I don't know anything about David Duke or the KKK on the eve of Southern primaries. And I think that this is the low-hanging fruit for Republicans to now come out and say, we condemn white nationalism. Because on the one hand, why does it take an overt form of racism for you to go in and condemn it? Where are you on mass incarceration? Where are you on voting rights? Where are you on all of these important issues that disproportionately impact black people? It's easy to say, oh, I condemn racism, sexism, and so forth. But my policies align with these white nationalist interests. And so for me, this I've said from the beginning that Donald Trump's entire election is nothing but a white nationalist movement in the U.S. to reclaim political power and reassert whiteness as a normative standard. Now, we have to be clear. Barack Obama's election did not disrupt the system in terms of establishing blackness as a, as a standard in the U.S., but it disrupted the descriptive representation of a black, of a black representing, uh, at least representing the presidency. Well... When I look at my party, when I look at the diversity in, I guess, local politics, um, for instance, a uh, guy that I'm working with now is a Asian-American, 
first-generation Asian-American, lives in an African-American community. He's a Republican. And to see the diversity, that's the thing that gives me hope for the Republican Party. Because the Republican Party has very has a very has very good ideas. I think the fact that our party has been hijacked by white nationalists and white supremacists since 1960, um, the 1960s, and with uh, I guess some people say with Ronald Reagan, and I think now the kind of the 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 last straw was the whole Donald Trump movement or Barack Obama movement, where you had a lot of white Dem- Democrats who are now Republican. Because if you look at a lot of the documentaries, the one thing that you see is where you see uh, these white Dem- these uh, white former Democrats now now converting over to the Republican Party or saying, you know, Donald Trump is is my president now, and this is the last, you know, Donald Trump is the man for me, and this I'll I'll be joining the Republican Party uh, instead of the Democratic Party. Well, this is my last time ever voting voting Democrat. So right, they so, were so, oh, so, so on. A lot of the a lot for, for a lot of people, when they saw Donald Trump, they saw a lot of white people saw, and this is middle class white people as well. They saw hope in Donald Trump, like how African Americans and minorities saw hope in in a uh, Barack Obama. Yeah, but um, I think the difference between the hope that African Americans espoused in an Obama presidency was that it was not rooted in anti-whiteness. And so we see that Donald Trump's election becomes his election is rooted in anti-blackness, is rooted in espousing these racial resentful attitudes, these attitudes that white people feel attacked and threatened. And so for for I've always said that when you look at Donald Trump. He he attached. Well, I'll say this: Donald Trump attached himself to a political ideology that is most compatible with wielding racism, hatred, and bigotry. And I want to be clear: there are white, there were white supremacists, and some are still racist people in the Democratic Party. Absolutely, absolutely, and we cannot forget that. But what I will say about Trump is Trump has welcomed these people with open arms. And refuse to to, to 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 sort of disavow them in a way, and then you have white people are so shocked, appalled that the president has not um, disavowed white supremacists. And he's and, and, and I'm sorry, go on. I, I, I really, I, and that's this is why I, I get on I get on people both on both sides because I always have to remind them Donald Trump is no Republican. He just lay. He 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 knew he knew this was the time to do it. He to me, I feel like Donald Trump was the opportunist that that took that that took the bait, and then he handed that bait to the American people, and the American people took it. He understood what was going on in the country. He understood that the majority of the country is still predominantly white, and that the majority of the country. Those in the in the mid in the middle America who have lost their jobs from the 1990s, um, that all you had to do was go out there and light the fire, and 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 it was spread. His message was a message that I think anybody could kind of relate to. If you've been working on in a job for about 20 to 30 years, and then one day your job, you know, your your company shuts down and move out of that town. 
So he was talking to a lot of people who who had been working in jobs for for years, and then all of a sudden in the 1990s with uh, NAFTA and and the TPP thing, they just up and left and shipped those companies overseas. And for many of those small town people, those companies were the only thing that was keeping that that town alive because there was nothing else there. So he was speaking to a he was speaking to a lot of middle American uh, townspeople. That's that was his. Besides the white supremacists, those people were also his his base. Those people who were tired of, who were disgusted with what happened with Bill Clinton and the whole NAFTA situation. And and what happened is you had these people expounding on this is why your jobs are gone. The, The Democratic president is the reason why your job is gone. And now this woman who was his wife, who probably had something to do with it, She's running. So if you think your job is going now, wait until she gets in office and she's going to really destroy this country. Right. And so, we're going to be globalized. So in my view, the very advancement of that particular argument is nothing but white privilege. Because rural America has been de- has been decimated for a number of years. When we look in the rural, I'm from rural, the rural Mississippi Delta, a little town Itabina, Mississippi, got 2,200 people. You look down town Itabina, everything is closed. Plants are closing. I mean, and the town, and, and so in much of the rural areas in America, this has been the story. Now, on the one hand, I do think there were voters who were concerned about perhaps losing jobs. But when you look at at where the country was when Barack Obama took office and where it was when he left, totally different measures in terms of the success we've had. The other thing that that, that I think happened is when you look at these rural white voters who, who are, have low levels of education, these are some of the most racist people who espouse some of the most racially resentful attitudes that you can ever find. And so for it, so in their view, Donald Trump primed their attitudes in the sense of these are the people we're going to blame for your current economic state. But guess what? When jobs closed in Mississippi Delta, black folk were told to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you working at a factory and don't have a good job, then it's your fault, not the government. And even when we look at this opioid abuse uh, uh, um, uh, of crisis that we're in, now we're talking about, oh, let's address this as a mental health issue. Nobody talked about addressing crack as a mental health issue in the 90s. Or, in, or, or, when, or when Nixon started his war on drugs. So it becomes a balance of rhetoric. And I don't want people to, to think that these things are happening out of the sky. All of this is designed to support and move forward this new white nationalist. It's not a new white nationalist movement. This post-Obama white nationalist movement. And what's other, something Trump said during his press conference, he said that... Uh, People were there to protest the Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Who's going to be next, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? And here we go. If I had been a journalist, I would have said, you are damn straight, Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington are next. Thomas Jefferson was a white supremacist who was a child molester, and George Washington owned slaves. And to somehow assert that there is a difference between them and Robert E. Lee, I understand people that Robert E. Lee was against the Union. But when you look at the ideas that are being advanced, the outcome becomes the same. And so, uh, you know, when we talk about these symbolic images, one of the good things I think has come of this is we're now engaged in a discussion about the role of 
symbols like the Confederate flag, the role of these Confederate memorials that you see all across the U.S. And so now we're having this discussion. You see some movements where people are now advancing to remove these particular things. And people are saying, well, you know, the white supremacists I see are, are, are planning movements. Uh, but I, I want to make another point. What is also interesting about what we saw happening in Charlottesville is that these people were bold enough in 2017 to do a march and not and not be ashamed of who they are, their faces. I mean, because all uh, honesty, if this had been a peaceful protest, what can you do? I mean, because then you would have had people saying, well, well then you would have had them, you know, people on their side saying, and, and I hear it all the time all the time so you have you mean to tell me you have the right to protest but i can't protest how i feel and that's one of the reasons why these people kind of, this is the reason why many of these white nationalists kind of grow or these organizations grow because you have you have um weak-minded young people because when i looked at when i looked at the pictures from the from the video these weren't old men these were these were kids. Yeah, many of them college kids. Yeah, absolutely. Kids, and these were these were men who were our age. To me, when I looked at these white nationalists, I was you know we all know that the Klan is always filled with you know lawyers, doctors, and stuff like that. But they weren't ashamed to hide their face because at this present moment they're they're going they have that they have the rhetoric they have the you know it's my constitutional right to to say what I want to say and protect what we feel needs to be protected in our country. You're getting rid of white, white pride and white, you know, white this and white that. So that's why they didn't have a fear of hiding their faces. In my well, honest opinion. And so I, I, I even advanced the argument that one reason they didn't have a fear of hiding their faces is that white nationalists and white supremacists are now descriptively represented in the white house. And even Mike Pence, that many people believe is a little tone, more toned down than Donald Trump represents the same ideas. And so for me, it's low-hanging fruit for Republicans to now come out of saying, oh, we condemn racists. You have Jeff Sessions, who got on TV talking about racism, that we condemn racism. it has no place in our society. Hell, he erases him on his, himself. He's a racist himself. And so that's low-hanging fruit. That does nothing for society from a moral standpoint that Republicans can now just come forward and say, oh, we condemn the claim. We condemn white nationalists. That doesn't require much work at all. And now people are so like, oh, you should be hand-clapped because they condemn white nationalists. Really, yeah, people? Tell people it's just like how I feel about Democrats. And it, it, a, lot of, a lot of people in that party mess over the African-American community themselves. We have that issue here in Houston. Um, I don't really care about people's words. What I like to see is policy. What policies are you going to put in place to, to make sure that whatever it is that you condemn or you don't like gets put into place? Because you can condemn racism and white nationalism all day. But I need to know what is it that you're going to put in place to make sure that that doesn't happen again or that that situation doesn't occur. Right. And so I'm reminded of Ronald Walters work, white nationalism, black interest, where he fundamentally makes the argument that when that when you are faced with the with with, with this with this entity or this force of white nationalism, political ideology or partisanship goes out of the window.
because white nationalism works its way through policies that are in the Democratic Party, through policies that are in the Republican Party. But he also makes the case that conservative ideology is compatible with white nationalism because every single policy that is advanced through conservative ideology raises white nationalism to the next standard, anti-affirmative action. Uh, when you talk about the war on drugs, you talk about mass incarceration. But um, he, he makes that point very clearly in the book that while ideology matters, when you're dealing with forces of white nationalism, it sort of works both ways. But I think what's unique here is that the Republican Party has become home for white nationalists. They were cheering uh, David Duke and, and indiv other individuals after the president... Uh, after the president uh, did not condemn them. So I, I just think that this 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 advances, uh, this takes us to a, a, a sort of another level in our discourse. And what surprises me every time is how outraged people are at Donald Trump's actions. I was the least bit outraged at all. He had shown us who he was during the campaign. But I do want to talk about um, this whole notion of moving these Confederate images, these Confederate memorials, these Confederate flags. To me, it's, it's they're, they're, they're statues. Um, it, when I look at them, they don't hurt me. They don't hurt me at all. Um, I do see both sides of... The spectrum. I see how people say, "Where well, you take the statues down," and because you're not really losing history, we have history books are everywhere. You know, we have museums. And oftentimes, whitewashed history that doesn't speak unequivocally to the truth. Correct. Uh, correct. But we all know <laughs> that. I mean, this is the age, the internet age. So you can never hide information. Um. I think I think one thing that many of the white supremacists say is, and this is their favorite thing to say is, you know, Dem of course Democrats want to get rid of the the conservative statues because it reminds them of the of the time period in their party where they were on the on the opposing side of the spectrum because we all know that during the <laughs> during the Civil War it wasn't the Republicans who were sitting there who were sitting there trying to hold on to slavery it was the Democrats so when you hear a lot of the you hear a lot of these um, and I always tell people I honestly know when a talking point is about to come about and I honestly know when a, a person gets a where a person gets a talking point from because it's like as soon as someone says it on on the t on the TV or tweets it everybody regurgitates it. Oh, absolutely. But one of the things I'll say about, about, about these whole Confederate statues, and someone made an excellent point the other night, on, I, forget, I think it was a commentator on CNN, and he suggested that what if a Jew had to attend a school named Adolf Hitler High School? That would be highly offensive to them, right? And so I, I see figures like um, Andrew Jackson, um, Robert E. Lee, the Confederate flag, all of these are, you know, why in the world would I want to display a memorial for someone who died fighting against the Confederacy? And so many, many of these Republicans uh, that you'll see uh, will say, oh yeah, I condemn uh, the Klan, but they're waving Confederate flags. 
They are praising these memorial these these memorials, and the the research in political science has been clear. People who support the Confederate flag, who support these Confederate memorials, espouse certain anti-black attitudes. And those anti-black attitudes are prevalent among Trump supporters. Now, I will say this. Racial resentment isn't simply new to Donald Trump. Racial resentment has been, has been found to be linked to conservative ideology and, in many cases, some uh, liberals as well. But I just think that this renews this discussion. But I also want to sort of move the conversation to these white nationalists showed up to a protest with sticks, guns, <laughs> knives. I don't see a video of either one of them being slammed to the ground. And if anybody has seen it, share it with me. They walked away, murdered someone. That is the very height of white privilege. And let Black Lives Matter do a protest. And, and they even look like they're about to do something. They're labeled as a terrorist organization. They're anti-police. All of this. I told somebody, I don't want to hear another word about a complaint about Black Lives Matter. I think that's the, I think that's the underlying issue here. And, and I think, I, I hate that we can, we continue to, to say, well, this person did this, this person did that, this person did this, this person did that. It's time to for us to kind of just say what say what say what it is. It's time for us to kind of like, okay, if these white nationalists can sit here and they can wave their Confederate flags and walk around and protest in their guns, then there should definitely be not one damn problem with a group of African Americans walking around with their guns and protesting in the streets and being slammed or being called thugs, or being called un-American. Because for me, I think somebody made mention of it on um, on their, their Twitter, uh, and I can't think of their Twitter handle right now, but this person specifically said, you guys can sit here and call Colin Kaepernick un-American for taking a knee for the Pledge of Allegiance, but you're sitting here, but you calling these, these white supremacists um, you're saying that they're oh they're just upset Americans when they're carrying around a damn Nazi flag, a flag that we fought fought against, which is un-American, and a Confederate flag, a a flag that dis that disenfranchised a whole what uh, three to four generations of 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 African African people, and uh, seceded from the the Union. Like to me, that is that is what that's what we're going here as, as a as a country is that we're continuing to be divided not only by race but by politics, and it seems like we're being divided by people who have something to gain. A lot of the a lot of the talk show hosts, a lot of these people know this stuff is wrong. They just want to baby it for their their for their subgroups of, of viewers. Right is right, wrong is wrong. If we're going to chastise Colin Kaepernick, we need to be chastising these um the, these uh, protesters at Charlottesville. If you're going to uh, speak negatively about the Confederate generals and them succeeding from the Union, then we definitely need to look at some of our presidents and 
founding fathers who owned slaves and didn't get rid of their slaves and raped <laughs> and raped uh, women to have ch children. You know, Thomas Jefferson has a whole line of African descendants who, who celebrate, I guess you want to say every year, that they're descendants of Thomas Jefferson. I, I don't think it's anything to celebrate because it just means that your grandmother was raped several times by the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, right is right, wrong is wrong. At some point in time, we have to kind of we have to kind of realize that American history is American history. Um, yeah. Whether you leave the statues up or whether you take them down, we have plenty of books. If you don't want them to be sitting on top of your, um, if you don't want them to be sitting on top of the state capitol, put them in a museum. I mean, and I think that is where Confederate imagery needs to go in a museum where it is contextualized and tied in a proper form. The problem that I have with this entire discussion is we, as Americans, continue to say, oh, this is not who we are. We're better than this. This is not, this is un-American. Newsflash, it was un-American for uh, black people to be shot down by police officers every other day. It was un-American for uh, a whole lot of shit that has taken place in our society over the, over, uh, since, since the founding of this nation. And so I advance the case that this is exactly who we are. This is exactly who this country is. We live in a racist nation that does not have the interests of black people at heart and will never have the interests of black people at heart. And that, whether it's Donald Trump or whether it's a Democratic office, that has been the case for black people in this country. And what is even more uh, concerning about this entire thing is we like to advance this notion that we're going to fight ISIS. We're going to go international. ISIS is bad. They're mowing people down with cars. Donald Trump campaigned and called Hillary Clinton out for not calling, what was the term he used, uh, Islamic extremist, that we are mm -hmm. war against Islamic extremists. And he would not even call uh, domestic terrorism what it was the other day. And so in 2017, a young lady loses her life at the hands of a white nationalist for counter-protesting. Uh, you know, and I think that is very tragic that this has happened, but it speaks directly to the racist rhetoric that has gone on in this country. Uh, one of the things I think happens is what does the Republican Party look like post-Trump? Uh, one would think that the party walks away fractured because many of uh, the individuals who continue to support Donald Trump uh, continue to do some, continue to do so, in spite of his racist rhetoric, in spite of his attitudes towards women, in spite of a whole lot of issues that everybody seems to find so problematic. But I suggest that they're supporting him in spite of these elements because deep down inside, this is what they truly believe. This is what they truly feel. And so for Donald Trump. In a country that's continuing to change, where white people are not appropriating children at the same rate that they once were, where their populations are shrinking, we now see a, a frightened white America. A frightened white America because they don't recognize this country with yellow, brown, and different people. They don't recognize this country when they go and people are not speaking English. And so it's not their America anymore. 
And so Donald Trump's campaign theme of Make America Great Again became a dog whistle for simply Make America White Again. And he represents this symbolic figure who's the siege of restoring whiteness back to our and system of government. See, my biggest issue comes in with that notion. Because I, I have to and I have to remind people that this country has always been like that. This is nothing new. When the, when the Irish first came in and they came in with their culture and their Catholicism, it was a rock that, you know, Americans got rowdy. Americans didn't like that. When the Germans came, when the Japanese came, it was the same thing. For some reason, people cannot grasp the concept that America or white America fears when a new wave of immigrants comes in. It's, it's it's been like that time and time again. Uh, you you know you're you're big on history. You understand the, the migration of different European European people and, and people from other countries. Every time every, it seems like every twenty to thirty years, a new wave of different immigrants can, come comes in, and it's always the Southern white Americans that act out. Right, right. I, I, I think that that is the case. But one of the things I think, too, is worth noting is that U.S. immigration policy has always favored white people. You know, when you look at the Naturalization Act, it was people from Europe and they sort of shone away allowing people of darker skins to come in. Yes, absolutely. When the Irish came, they were not considered white. When the Jews came, they were not considered white. However, they now benefit from white privilege in many cases. Uh, also, when I think about this new, but and that's my issue as well because the same the same people whose fathers or grandfathers were looked down on, they do the exact same thing now to to Hispanics, Muslims, and people that come from other places. Um, I think I think the problem is is that instead of it, this country being kind of like. Uh, consumed by white Americans from Europe, we're starting to see uh, a huge migration of brown and dark people coming into the country. And it goes back to that uh, to the policy that Donald Trump is, is trying to push where it just happened like maybe a week and a half ago, um, where basically they're trying to rewrite legal immigration where if you don't speak English, you can't come into America. And I'm looking at them like the people that can speak English in their country don't want to come to America. But what you don't realize is that in China, in that billion, that one, that one billion um, population place, before those kids can graduate from high school, they have to speak English. So if you're if you're if your one main concern is making sure that you get people that can speak English and that are highly intelligent, you may end up with a, a bunch, a lot of Chinese people crossing over and being citizens before white people. Because when you look at uh, people from Germany, not all of them can speak English. Oh, I agree. Uh, but I also think as we unpack this entire Trump movement, that it's important to tell us what the data says, right? So I think part of it is there is an anxiety amongst whites um, if you were to explore the American election studies data, the 2016 elections data, you will find that over 70 percent of white Trump supporters suggest that whites in America face a lot of discrimination. 
that whites in America face a lot of discrimination. When you look at the percentage of, of Trump supporters who believe that Hispanics face discrimination, 74% believe that Hispanics face no discrimination in the U.S. 76% of Trump supporters suggest that blacks face no discrimination in the U.S. And so in many cases, or as I, as I sort of process this Trump movement, it is a force of white nationalism. And that the small advances that we made under Barack Obama essentially becomes a threat to white interests. And so the response to white interests, in my particular view, becomes this radical form of conservatism that's personified through Donald Trump. And I think every single, because, and I was telling a colleague this the other day, if you look at Donald Trump's uh, entire stand, if you look at his presidency since taking the oath of office in January, he's failed on almost every single domestic front of policy. So where does he turn his attention to now? We, we got announcements that the Justice Department was getting, is getting ready to review college admission policies and affirmative action policies. We received notification that the Trump was advancing this ridiculous policy on uh, immigration. So he's returning back to the great unifier for his supporters, and that is this hatred and bigotry. And sitting in the White House next to him is Steve Bannon and this uh, Stephen Miller, this Stephen Miller fellow, who's a, who are also white nationals. And so it, it, it just this becomes, for me, part of a larger movement that's far bigger than Trump. But it falls in line with his, what we've seen historically in, America, in American political developments after periods of racial progress in this nation. Hmm. And so that's, I, will, I will make that argument every single day that this is, this is greater than Trump. This becomes part of a larger movement of white nationalism that has taken this country by storm. Uh, even if you look at the election of Barack Obama and, 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 and the response of the nation behind it, increased racial attitudes, increased racial riots, number of black men continue to be shot down at disproportionate rates. Uh, we see the Supreme Court essentially guts the Voting Rights Act. We see a assassination that took place in 1940 style with the assassination of Reverend Clemente at the Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina. We see uh, a number of different racial uh, incidents that have happened. Uh, and even the Southern Poverty Law Center continues to note um, increases in both recruitment and in, in issues of racial um, of, of, of racial um, racial incidents that, 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 that have taken place in this nation. Right. Um, I I'm not mistaken. I definitely know they they saw an increase since the Trump administration of about what did they say 100 100 150 percent. Yeah, I haven't seen the data. I, I I don't have it. I don't remember what it says. I've seen it, but I don't remember. But it basically, basically, basically the the number of white supremacy groups rose, and the number of white supremacy activists or members into those groups rose exponentially with the um, election of Donald Trump. And what I, and like you said, and I agree with you on that, 
I think the the presidency of, of Donald Trump or Donald Trump being elected by America gave those individuals a voice where he's basic where you basically see these people are saying, well, our president said it. Our president called, uh, you know, Hispanics uh, criminals and rape. and all they do is rape and, and do crime. So on top of them feeling like feeling disenfranchised, they have a need to kind of like what they did with Birth of a Nation, the original film, where you have this these African-Americans raping white women. They feel like we have to save America from the, the bad brown people. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, again, uh, I'm I would the Supreme Court is set to hear a racial redistricting case coming this fall. I am anticipating that the court will decide this particular case in a manner that favors conservative ideology. Hopefully, I'm wrong. But history has proven at every time in our country's history, it has been experienced by periods of that where there has been racial progress. It's experienced by periods of cons- radical conservatism. I guess one of the other questions I have is for black conservatives, what are they feeling now? How do you reconcile one's racial identity with? What, this I, notion of of, 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 of of white nationalism, and I understand that it exists at all levels of our society, but for me, I, I don't. I, I, I that that is something that I sort of wonder about. I'm the black conservative that knew this shit. Well, <laughs> I'm the black conservative that knew this would happen. I'm the black conservative that <laughs> kind of told everybody, yeah, Donald Trump is going to win, but he may end up being the death of the Republican Party. Because what happens is, what people don't realize is that both parties, they have a certain number of, of, of people. They have their base. Now, the thing that swings elections are those moderates in the middle. With this president talking the way he's talking speaking the way he's speaking, not getting, first and foremost, you're not getting anything done. You haven't seen any real legislation being pushed through um, through Congress. He's always blaming everybody but himself for stuff that <laughs> that's his fault. You mean it's, you mean we have control and this is the, this is the thing that a lot of Democrats are probably going to do and speak on, and a lot of the voters are going to agree with, is that you have control of the House, you have control of the Senate, you have control of the presidency, and you even have, in some some case, control of the Supreme Court. So you, you asked us to give you control of this, this, and this, and you will get the job done, and you will get things done. Well, here we are almost in September. Um... Reform hasn't been done. Repeal and replace hasn't been done for Obamacare. We don't see any infrastructure talk. I, I go out into, if you come to Houston and you drive on these roads, it definitely will tell your alignment up on your car. We're not looking at education. We haven't looked at education reform, and we, we are both educators, so we know that education reform needs to happen. We're not looking at the debt ceiling because between Donald Trump's 
idiotic statements, okay, in the Russian investigation, the media in our country is consumed with that. And he's consumed with it. I see, and this is what this is what happens when you have a lame duck president placed into office. Because instead of him trying to get things done that can help his cause, he goes with what the media says. And he keeps the media's um he keeps the media media's narratives going instead of creating the narrative. The problem is Donald Trump is incompetent. Donald Trump has never had to work in his life. Donald Trump is a egotistic, non-taxpaying, misogynistic, racist guy, and he has shown his true color. Now, the other element that I think that's taking place, as we sort of see with Trump, is this whole notion of, I'm the president, I'm not accountable to anybody, I say and do what I want to, and that's not working out for him at all. Um, again, as we have this discussion... We haven't learned anything new about Donald Trump since he's been president. This is exactly who he was on the campaign trail. This is exactly how he campaigned. And this is exactly how he won the White House. And it was several white people. And then here's another thing that sort of gets me sort of passionate. Is so many of our white colleagues, oh, Donald Trump won't disavow the KKK. He should uh, disavow the KKK. And they're so outraged. But when it comes to the issues that really matter to black people, when it mm -hmm. comes to the issues that really impact our lives and livelihood, treating black people with respect in the workplace, speaking up for black interests in majority white spaces when you have an opportunity or a position of power, when it comes to advocating for fair voting rights, when it comes to advocating for mass incarceration, uh, uh, speaking up against mass incarceration, when it comes to speaking up for the issues that really matter, they're nowhere to be found. But yet they don't have a problem with condemning overt acts of racism, but yet I think I did this that and this it's it's basically to me, Malcolm X uh, said it best. And, and I always tell people I look at those liberals and those white Americans who sat around when there was segregation going on for almost seventy years after slavery. Well, who Trump sat there and right because it's not harming because it's not harming me and my family, and because I my privilege isn't isn't uh, up for grabs, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll let y'all do it on y'all own. And it's, and it's not until it's in your face and in your home, that's when white America wants to do something about it. Just like the crack cocaine, the crack, the crack, um, Epidemic, yeah. crack it, it, they didn't care about that until now, now that, you know, the drug thing is hitting their homes with op opioids. It's just like, the HIV AIDS situation that happened around the same time. White America, white middle America did not care about the HIV AIDS epidemic because they thought it was a gay um, LGBT issue. Oh, oh, oh white man's disease. Absolutely. Right. And it wasn't until it started hitting their kids and until people started getting, until they started getting sick, uh, and young people started getting sick that they came to realize, oh, crap, this thing takes more than just gay people away. It's taking out, it can easily 
take our kids. So now, so that's when, you know, they decided to do something about it. It's never anything, it, nothing is done until it's well, in their face. Right. So, and, and so in many cases, uh, the lady uh, uh, who was killed during the demonstration it was a white lady in many cases benefit from the privilege. And I think I'm not any, taking anything away from her in the sense of what she was standing for. I think that was a noble thing. She lost a life in the line of, of, of battle to a senseless, cowardly act. But what is interesting about how this discussion has gone, you know, you hear Black Lives Matter protesters. They are thugs. They are uh, they need to be peaceful protesting. Why do people have guns? Uh, Virginia is open carry state, right? Uh, you let Black Lives Matter protesters show up to a protest armed. It, it, it's going to work out totally different from what we've seen with white nationalists. We saw images coming out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when Alton Sterling was killed there of this African-American woman who's holding her composure in the most beautiful sense you can see being handled roughly by police officers. Correct. You see this image happening all the time around this nation. And again, the response to white America is totally different every single time. Uh, and even when we talk about, and so we're live on Facebook as we talk, so our Facebook followers can hear it as well. Uh, someone made the point that um, segregation is still going on in, um, in, in, in Mississippi, and she's absolutely correct. In fact, I think it was this past spring or maybe last year, that a federal court ordered the desegregation in the Cleveland School District. And that's absolutely the case. And I think it could, and, and re really, um, again, I'm not outraged at any of this. I think if you study white people, you study white attitudes, you study white political behavior, you see this every single time happening in our society. And it has not been anything new or unique, um, new or unique to our society at all. I agree. Um, I tell well, in my honest opinion, I, I feel like what what we see today in in educate in school in schools it is the modern day segregation. Oh, um, absolutely! Our school systems are are segregated, especially here in Tech in in in, in Houston. I see it. As, I see it with we have about fifteen different school districts in one city. You have Klein, you have Klein, which is the middle class, upper class, black and white, predominantly well, white, predominantly white area where you have a sprinkle of black and Hispanics, and then south of that you have the Aldean School District where you have the lower income people, and based off of that that districting, the kids in Aldean can't come to the to the school to to Klein even if they're right around the corner. The thing that separates them is a the street, and mm -hmm. The school could be right there, but you're not allowed to go to that school because, or to that district because you're on this side of the street. Yeah. And we, white people will have us to believe that this is not by design. Um, if you In Mississippi, I graduated from LaFleur County High School class of 2004, and I hope we kicked Greenwood High's butt this weekend. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. There was one white person in our class. And what mm -hmm. happens historically in our county is there's Pillow Academy, which is, a, which is a predominantly white private school, and then there's the public school system. And so many of your white people, all your white people essentially send their children to Pillar Academy, and black children go to public 
go to uh to do the public school and you have white teachers who will teach at the public school and send their children to the private academy and and so again all of this has implications for i think what's going on one of the things we know from research is that increased interaction usually decreases uncertainty and so when you continue to keep people divided by race, there's less interaction among the groups. And people have these tendencies to, to continue to espouse these attitudes. Well, I think and I think that I, I think when you segregate people, like like you said, it doesn't allow people to get to know someone. So you can stereotype a whole group of people but have never met them. Absolutely. But when you can segregate things and you have people amongst each other, you come to realize that these people aren't that much different from me. You know, they're after the same thing I'm after. But when you have, when you have, play, and hence, that's why when you have metropolitan areas, you have more liberal, you have a more liberal uh, demographic of people than in these rural towns. Mm -hmm. because, oh, oh, absolutely. I work in a... Uh, I tell people, if you're not in the major cities, the major cities, Houston, Dallas, Austin, in San, um, San Antonio are predominantly democratically ran because there are there four metropolitan areas where you have a plethora of people. Mind you, Dallas is a little segregated, right. but if you go into the rest of Texas, and we all know Texas is huge, and you go into those little pockets and those little small towns, you'll see a plethora of white folks, but a hand a sprinkle full of black people. You're not going to get to know different types of people because the predominant or the, the dominant uh, group of people there are, are at and are just like you. Oh, absolutely. I work um, in Greencastle, Indiana, which is a rural area uh, in Putnam County uh, and is rural, white and poor. If we did not have our university in Greencastle, it would be a destitute rural community and it's still destitute. Don't get me wrong. But it is one of the most racist towns I have ever uh, lived in. You have um, white people who, as a professor, how, you know, and, and I think there's this resentment that goes on. How dare this black man comes to this, our community, work at this elite private college, and I'm stuck at my low-level job. And I don't think I'm bad at anybody, but I think this is the, the sort of thinking that people have. There's a resentment between university employees and the Greencastle locals uh, that, that, that happens there. And I think that that becomes, um, you know, it, it, it's problematic. And, and, it, and, and these people, they've never interacted with black people. The only, and I use this example in my class. I said, look, I teach a lot of white kids. In fact, 95% of my classes are white. I said, so when we talk about stereotypes and how stereotypes develop, if I've never interacted with a black person and the only black person I've seen is Debo from Friday, mm -hmm. then that becomes the stereotypical image of what I have about what a black man represents. So when I see an aggressive black man, I've already stereotyped this particular black man as this particular way. And I see with our time, we're at an hour now, but I want to devote at least two minutes to North Korea. What are your thoughts on this growing threat from North Korea? And I'll tell you what I think. Well, I, North Korea, I honestly, I always, I always tell, I hate to sound like a conspiracy person, but 
I honestly think that North Korea is funneled and, and, and being helped by the very same people that we're that's supposed to be helping us um, keep them where they are, which is China and Russia. I honestly think, and I honestly think China, the reason why they're able to to move the way they're moving or to even advance the way that they're advancing is not even on their own. I feel like there's there's some type of uh, help between them and the Chinese because at the end of the day, when I look at the Asian continent, I think they're they're willing to help themselves before they're willing to help the American people, the, the American government. Well, here's my take on North Korea. I think North Korea has been a growing threat to the security in that particular region for a number of years. What is different now is that we have two ignorant fools that are leaders of countries. And if I had to put cash judgment on both Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump are cut from the same cloth, they're both um, they're both um, narcissists. narcissists. They are both um, full of themselves in terms of their ego. And uh, but I do think that one thing is clear. I think that if North Korea were to launch a missile that attacks anyone in that particular region, it would be the end of their regime. I do think that's the case. Right. But I, I think that uh, Donald Trump, on the other hand, wants to say, oh, if they attack Guam, there's going to be fire and fury like the world has never seen before. He didn't give that to the Klan. We hope they would see fire and fury. But hey, that's that's well, well see, the issue time. is. And I think. I think what happened is the Korean government just they 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 called Donald Trump's bluff. Donald Trump basically said, "If you guys threaten us, threaten America at any at any point, we're going to attack you." And that definitely didn't happen because within the next the same day and a few hours later, that regime specifically said, "We're going, you know, we'll we'll attack Guam if we have to," which is what put Guam in this high. A high state of emergency. So they called Donald Trump's bluff. And and the one thing that you don't want to do is threaten a country with nuclear war before you do some type of diplomacy. But that's what happens again when you have a novice in office. And the fact that you, your generals have to, your generals, your vice president, and the secretary of state said the complete opposite shows the lack of power that you have in your own administration. For a little bit of levity in a week that's been full of uh, depressing news, that a priceless moment this week was when uh, the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and Nikki Haley were standing next to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump threatened to use a militarized force against Venezuela. The look on their faces were priceless because they were looking like, "Oh my goodness, what is he talking about?" And and. It, it, and I think again, that's because international politics. Why would you? Why would you threaten a country with nuclear war when they when we know they don't have that type of power that, that type of power to, to strike back for one? And if your only policy is to threaten someone with war or with nuclear power, then we need to rethink who the heck we have sitting in office. Because at any given time. If you feel, and again, that goes back to the saying that I don't want this man with his hands on the nuke codes. Clearly, well, Hillary Clinton tried to warn you all that a man that could be baited with a tweet has nowhere. But but the country was too racist to deal with those truths. Well, you can thank um, you can thank uh, 
people like Mark Lamont Hill as well for and, and Cornell West. That was a piece that came out the other day by uh, Dr. Ravi Perry. Um, and he talked about how black uh, progressives stopped progress. And he makes the whole case that you had individuals like Cornel West, Mark Lamont Hill, who were telling people don't vote, that, oh, we're going to wait for a revolution, that maybe we need to experience Trump because Trump is going to wake people up. And the Democratic Party hadn't really been loyal to people. And what he makes the case is that this was terrible political advice, that when you look at the position of black people, the most vulnerable you cannot advise people not participating in a process does not become a collective, does not become, it does not become an option. And so you end up with folk like Donald Trump. When you look, and when you look at the status of folk like Cornel West, when you look at the status of uh, Martin Lamont Hill, they're less likely to be impacted by any of these disastrous policies. But I see right. we're, we're, we're at an hour now. So you want to do any concluding thoughts? Uh, my concluding thoughts is just like many of the other horrible things Donald Trump says, this is going to blow over uh, by some time next week, Monday. This is the, to me, this is just like a reality show. Um, we should call it America. Um, basically something's going to happen on Monday and we're going to have a new narrative. Mm -hmm. I just wish media, I just wish that the media wouldn't always jump from one narrative to the next but um yeah like just like anything else this is going to blow over right now we're seeing people leave and exit uh you know donald trump's side but again this is just going to be another talking point for scholars in the media in 10 years uh this week to me hopefully opens the eyes of those moderates who voted for Donald Trump thinking that he was going to make change for them and thinking that he wasn't a racist and showing them because a lot of moderates, they are, they are big on the union and big and, and they hate the Confederacy. So hopefully this kind of wakes them up that we have a president who is willing to side with people who are an American because I, Bottom line, if you're a neo-Nazi, you're an un-American to me uh, because that's something that we fought against. Um, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm sorry. I'm hoping that um, I'm hoping that something positive comes out of this uh, infrastructure bill or something. Um, not just for for the Republican Party or for Trump's sake, but for the American people's sake, because we can't have another three years, five months, and a couple of days of nothing getting done in America. Well, I'll say this. I have no faith in anybody who pulled the level for Trump. And the reason I say that is uh, what people had hoped during this last presidential election is that there would be enough goodwill white people <laughs> that would band together and reject Trump. And I served on a panel at my university and I remember informing the audiences. I said, every time Black people have put their livelihood in the hands of white people. We end up with the short end of the stick. And so don't count on white people to save us from our interests. Um, so I think these are my concluding thoughts. We would like to thank you guys for tuning in. I think that Trump will probably come up with another story to, to get some distraction from this. He'll probably fire somebody in the White House and that'll take over. Uh, mm -hmm. that'll, that'll take over 
the political storm for a couple of days. And so we would like to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, And be sure to like our podcast, share it on social media. You can access it on soundcloud.com. Let's talk politics with Eminent Dean. It's also available on, um, it's also available on uh, iTunes as well. And so you can certainly, um, certainly um, subscribe, like, and share. Thank you guys for tuning in and have a great night.